Big stories, big guests, the big picture. Afternoons with Rob Breckenridge. Weekdays 1230 to 3, 770 CHQR. Welcome to the podcast. I'm Rob Breckenridge. On today's episode, a closer look at the potential problems with Ottawa's contentious Bill C-69. Also, is the NHL doing enough to reduce head injuries and concussions? Is the NHL in denial of the scientific evidence in this field? Plus, how we might protect our planet from a deadly asteroid by ramming a spacecraft into it. Alberta's freshly sworn in Premier Jason Kenney is in the nation's capital today and bringing a message of opposition to Bill C-69 with him. Jason Kenney presented to the Senate Energy Committee this morning. The Premier will meet this afternoon with Prime Minister Justin Trudeau, which should be an interesting meeting. Uh, No love lost between the two. Uh, They were putting on a a nice face uh, in, uh, in, in meeting publicly today before going behind closed doors but earlier today this is what alberta's premier said his message to justin trudeau would be on bill c-69 if this bill and and bill c-48 are adopted in anything like their current form that this will be inflaming a growing national unity problem in alberta and will be a body blow to our country's prosperity um and uh so i'm going to be very clear about that as i have been publicly um i have always said to albertans that i hope our new government can um begin our relations with the current federal government in a diplomatic way but ultimately we are prepared to use every tool in the legal and political toolbox to defend our vital economic interests so if bill if the no more pipelines act becomes law in anything like its current form i will tell the prime minister that we will launch a constitutional challenge we will do the same thing on bill c48 and ultimately if we cannot get a coastal pipeline built and the withdrawal of of of, uh, attacks like these two bills i am prepared to trigger a constitutional referendum on equalization, Section 36 of the Constitution. So we want to start by trying to find common ground, but ultimately we are prepared to use these ex- the, these tools to defend um, our prosperity. Now, the Senate has indicated uh, an openness to, to looking at amendments to Bill C-69, but even if they do, even if they do adopt changes, will the Prime Minister and his government accept those changes? That's what remains to be seen. But, of course, I think there are some very serious and legitimate concerns about Bill C-69. The Canada West Foundation, uh, oh, with another look at C-69 today, cwf.ca. Uh, joining us to talk a bit more about where this all goes from here. Very pleased to welcome to the program Marla Orenstein, Director of Natural Resources Center with the Canada West Foundation. Marla, thanks for joining us here. Welcome to the program. Thank you, Rob. Now, in terms of an overview of C-69, this is meant to to overhaul the approval process for not just pipeline projects, but all sorts of different energy infrastructure projects. Uh, so th- this is, these are some pretty big changes that C-69 would bring in. Absolutely. Um, and it's something that goes broader than just the energy industry as well. This is a bill that would, would cover environmental assessments for things like railroads, for airports, for ports, for new highway construction. So it's quite quite broad in that sense. It's not, in theory, targeted just at the energy industry, although, as we know, there's a lot of energy industry that gets regulated under this process. Mm-hmm. And, and there are things about it that the Canada West Foundation believes are steps in the right direction. Increased transparency, uh, more Indigenous participation. Uh, so, so there are changes we could make to our existing process that might be steps in the right direction. But what are the concerns with C-69? 
We must definitely support the intentions of this bill. Our current environmental assessment process needs to be overhauled. In fact, as Minister McKenna pointed out today, it's the current process that's had no pipelines built under it as well. There are most definitely things that need to be fixed. And some of the things that the bill does moves it definitely in the right direction. Everybody wants shorter timelines. Everybody wants more transparency. Everybody wants rationale to be provided around decisions. And some of the logistics... They're, they're helpful. So those, those are definitely small improvements, but, but they're overwhelmed by the way in which the bill is being used um, sort of against energy projects in, in a particular way, both by doing things like including in-situ projects on the project list for the first time and also in allowing a, a huge amount of discretion for the minister to decide at the end of the very long regulatory process whether ultimately it will be a yes or a no. Uh, This report today from uh, the Canada West Foundation looks at the question of jurisprudence and how these these matters could get tied up in the courts. What what is the link then between what Bill C-69 lays out and the possibility uh, of court challenges to projects? Yeah, well, court challenges have been what have really tied up the projects. It's not been so much the timelines of the process itself. And so taking out three days here or five days here, two weeks there, it's a nice idea to reduce the overall timeline. But if it's going to end up in court again at the end of the whole process, you're talking about the addition of years and years onto project approvals. And that's what's really um, been a problem. But there's also been a good thing about this. Because of the challenges that have come out of Northern Gateway, out of Trans Mountain, there's been some judicial clarity around what's needed. And they've also endorsed the existing process. Those are really good because it means future court challenges are less likely um, if you go back and say, well, this has already been tested. It's already been looked at by a judge. It's already been reviewed reviewed and found to be be good. The problem is that with Bill C-69, there's a lot of areas where that process is now changed. And we think that it has changed sufficiently that it opens the door again to new court challenges because the process is not similar enough for the, the jurisprudence to hold. That's what we see as being the real risk that's built into the bill right now. And is that a bigger risk, those delays associated with court challenges? Is that a bigger issue than, than regulatory uh, delays? Yeah, it absolutely is. Regulatory delays are relatively small. There's there's concerns about stopping the clock. Within this bill, they've tried to, to make the timeline shorter. It went for, from 365 days of federal time down to 300 days for many projects and from um, about 650 down to 600 in other cases. So those those are good. But again, if you, if you stop at the end and then you have to deal with a couple of, of years of regulatory challenge, you're looking at a much, much longer process. So for Trans Mountain, for example, they've now been in the courts for three years beyond the point at which they originally got the approval. Even things like uh, Port Metro Vancouver's Roberts Bank Terminal 2, it's now been, I think, about four or five years since the, um, the approval came through and they're still in the courts over it. So can we fix C-69 or, or do, we need to, do we need to start over? That's a great question. Part of it depends on, firstly, what the Senate can push through in terms of amendments, and then whether the House is prepared to accept those amendments or not. There's been a, a package of amendments that's been put forward by industry. Um, I, we, we don't think that they're terribly aggressive. We think they're actually quite reasonable, and they're intended to... to tighten up the bill in certain ways so that there's less uncertainty about the process. Um, so I, I, it's not industry asking for the moon. It's really a, a set of things that will just provide clarity as to who does what when. Um, we think that if these amendments can go through, it's something that industry will get behind and support. If the amendments are cherry-picked and some are taken, some aren't, 
or if it's not brought through, then, then we think it's much less likely that there will be support of the bill by industry or by a number of the senators, um, and it could, could fail in that way. Well, more at uh, cwf.ca. Marla, thanks for joining us here this afternoon. Appreciate this. Thanks so much. Bye-bye. All right. Marla Orenstein is director of the Natural Resources Center with the Canada West Foundation, along with Martha Hall-Finley, releasing this report today. And, and the concern about losing that jurisprudence. So we've, we've had some pretty major court cases in recent years. Uh, it, some have been positive, some not so much. But what we can take from those court rulings is that we have some certainty around certain questions. And going forward, we have that, that precedent. We have that jurisprudence we can fall back on. So the big concern with C-69 is that it changes things so much that this jurisprudence will no longer apply. So all of these court cases, all of this precedent we have, if we have to throw all of that out the window and start back at square one, that's just going to result in years and years of additional delays in getting not just energy projects, but other type of infrastructure built. And that's a big, big concern. Sure, there's some regulatory uncertainty that C-69 creates, but throwing out all of that previous jurisprudence, that's a big issue. I don't believe there has been, based on everything I've been told, and if anybody has information to the contrary, we'd be happy to hear it. Uh, Other than some anecdotal evidence, there has not been that uh, conclusive link. Well, that was NHL Commissioner Gary Bettman testifying before a committee on Parliament Hill yesterday and talking about the issue of concussions, hits to the head, and what's known as CTE. Now, that's a line that Gary Bettman has said many times before and certainly uh, it seems to have a vested interest in playing up, maybe overplaying the uncertainty that exists on this front because the medical experts uh, certainly talk about this with much more certainty about that link. And other professional leagues are a lot further along in acknowledging this link than is the NHL. But Gary Bettman's line is that everything is fine. We're addressing this problem. We have meaningful policies and protocols in place. And these concerns about the long-term effects of concussions and hits to the head, well, there's a lot we don't know. So what do we make of it all? There's a great piece uh, in the Toronto Star about Bettman's appearance yesterday. Uh, Thestar.com, you can find it. Joining us on the line is Dave Festchuk. He is a sports columnist for the Toronto Star, author of said piece. Dave, thanks for making some time for us here. Welcome to the program. Hey, happy, happy to do it, Rob. I, I suppose we shouldn't be surprised by anything we heard from Gary Bettman because he's, he's basically offered this, the, same, the same line many times before, hasn't he? He certainly has, Rob. I guess, I guess if you were optimistic, if you, if you believe the best in people, I guess there was a shade of hope that maybe with the passing of time, with, with the, uh, you know, the, the, the uh, mellowing of age, maybe. Gary Bettman's now 66. He's now in the Hockey Hall of Fame. Uh, they've come, they've come down to a settlement, uh, that's, I, I'll be at a pending settlement in their concussion lawsuit with, uh, various former players. Uh, maybe you, maybe you hoped that Gary Bettman would, uh, be offering a slightly more enlightened opinion about the, uh, about the state of the science on concussions and CTE. Alas, no, he did, he did not do that. And, and to be clear here, I mean, in some ways he can, he can stand on that ground by saying there's no conclusive link between repetitive head trauma and cte but that sort of is a technicality because really you can no science is necessarily conclusive science scientists don't necessarily prove anything once and for all science is always evolving so to say the evidence is conclusive uh, 
would be probably wrong, but you could. I would. T- I would say the evidence is compelling. The evidence is mounting. The evidence needs to be taken seriously. And Gary Bettman doesn't say those things. He dismisses it out of hand as though this link is not existent, and that's as far not not anywhere near the truth. Well, is it simply because it would be bad for business to acknowledge that? Yeah, I think it's. I think that's exactly it. I think there's. It opens up a whole can of worms. Although, frankly, you know, the NFL has been down this road, and it's almost three years now since the the VP of of safety with the NFL went on record saying that he believes there is a link between repetitive head trauma and CT, which is essentially what most like right-headed experts seem to believe. Um, and I think the NFL has been way more proactive in implementing rules uh, to, to limit head contact, to limit hits to the head principally. And, and look, has it hurt the NFL's product? I think not. You know, the NFL is, is the behemoth of North American sports, and it's not going anywhere. It's en route to being uh, the league that everybody knows it will be. It's, it's number one and, and, and not actually any, in any danger of falling off that perch. Yeah, you know, and it was interesting to hear Gary Bettman talk yesterday, Rob, about how he believes that a similar rule in hockey, one that's been proposed by some serious thinkers like Ken Dryden, of course, the Hockey Hall of Fame goaltender who wrote a book about uh, the effects of head trauma. Uh, Dryden proposed a zero-tolerance rule on hits to the head. And yesterday on Parliament Hill, I think it was disappointing to hear Gary Bettman dismiss that idea out of hand, saying it, it just couldn't work because I believe it could work. Uh, he and a lot of the rationale he provided, in my opinion, just wasn't logical. Well, yeah, he said at one point, he said, ultimately, there would be no more body checking that if we were going to to have zero tolerance for hits to the head. And I'm not sure why that that would be the case. Well, it, it wouldn't be the case. That's just an outright fallacy. I mean, it's there's no way you can say you can't have body contact without head contact. And he made the point that, well, if if, if imagine a player my height, and of course, Gary Bettman isn't a, isn't a particularly tall man. He was trying to make the point that every time a short guy gets hit by a tall guy, there'd be head contact. And that's just, that's wrong, too. I mean, if you've watched hockey for five minutes, you realize that there are ways to hit people without hitting them in the head, no matter how tall you are and how tall they are. Mm -hmm. You know, what's happened in the NFL and what would happen in the NHL, guess what? Athletes adapt. They, They, the athletes put the onus on themselves to find ways to make that check without the head being the principal point of contact. That's what you're looking for here. That's what you want here. You want athletes to be a little more cautious about the way they hit. I mean, it was only about a decade ago, maybe less than that, when, when there was no restrictions on this sort of thing, Rob, and we saw an absolute, absolute series of really horrifying events out on the ice where, where heads were being taken off, for lack yeah. of a better term. And, you know, the NHL could, could definitely advance in this area. I think Gary Bettman's rationale yesterday was terrible. I thought the MPs uh, on, on Parliament Hill, you know, weren't, very, weren't particularly fawning, which was a, a surprise, and actually held him to account to a large degree. There just wasn't enough time to really probe him on this particular issue, which I wish somebody would have. Well, I mean, you mentioned we, we look back at, uh, you know, where the NHL was even 20 years ago or, or certainly some of the mayhem from from the 70s or 80s. We, I mean, we're, we're past that in a lot of ways. There's more awareness about this issue. I mean, the NHL does have, you know, concussion spotters and, and that whole protocol. But I mean, how, how, how much of an advancement does this represent? Well, look, I mean, look, the, the concussion spotters are great, although, as my colleague Rick Westhead of TSN uh, pointed out, you know, they're anonymous concussion spotters right now and they're not they're never they're never identified they're never named and uh, westhead was at parliament hill yesterday attempting to ask gary bettman about that very topic about why there isn't more transparency about who the who the spotters are 
and uh, and where they are in the arenas. Uh, and, and Bettman just wouldn't take the question. He, he he deferred the question. So I don't understand why there's secrecy around that. I don't understand why there's not more transparency around that. You know, Bettman was patting the league on the back for being leaders in the baseline testing going back to 1997, I believe it was, which is great. But, you know, this, this baseline testing stuff has been made to be a mockery. It was only a couple of years ago that uh, Mark Edward Vlasic, of course, the San Jose Sharks defenseman who's played for the national team in some big events, made a point that the only way he would fail his return to play baseline test after having a concussion was if he was in a coma. So if, if the players mm-hmm. are making a mockery of these things, they need to be reexamined, not, not just celebrated because they're in place for optics' sake. The other point you raised in your piece, which is an important one, we had Bettman referred yesterday to the NHL as, as a family, but, but so many of the former players who have been dealing with the effects of this feel as though they've, they've kind of been abandoned by the NHL. Is, is that where the NHL really needs to, to improve in looking after these former players who are dealing with these issues? Yeah, I, I, believe, I believe in that strongly. I mean, I've, I've, I've spent many, many hours on the phone with a lot of these players who are totally disenfranchised. These are the, these are the men who helped build this league and they've been they've essentially been left for dead and some in some in some ways literally in some instances literally left for dead by this league and I think that's what that's what the alumni really wants to see happen here a little more attention paid to the fact that yeah okay let's let's all agree uh, if if this lawsuit you know this this concussion lawsuit really didn't turn out the way the former players wanted it to um, Let's, why don't we have a league, because this league is, is, is swimming in money, why don't we have a league fund that allows players who are in need, thanks to repetitive head trauma, to tap into it when they need medical care? I mean, in Canada, I think the players are in better shape in some ways. But in the United States, where medical care, as you know, can run you a huge bill, there are a lot of players in very dire straits because of that, uh, and a lot of players whose stories have been uh, you know, incredibly tragic. So. Uh, I don't understand why leagues don't pay more attention to the needs of their alumni. We've seen it. The NHL is not the only league that's, that's hung alumni out to dry. But I think in this particular case, uh, because we've come to this dawning of realization over the past 10, 15 years about how dangerous this sport can be to the human brain, uh, I think some consideration needs to be made for the fact that there are men who lived through an, an era of, of, of relative ignorance uh, and paid the price for it. And the league benefited from it because we all watched it as kids uh, and, and many generations watched it. I think those guys deserve something for the, the toll the game exacted on their bodies. Yeah, no doubt. Well, we'll leave it there, Dave. Uh, folks, who read your piece again. It's up at thestar.com. Uh, they can follow you on Twitter, at DFestchuk. Dave, thanks so much for joining us here this afternoon. Really appreciate it. Hey, I enjoyed it, Rob. Thank you. Take care. Dave Festchuk, sports columnist for the Toronto Star, thestar.com. All right, when we come back, we're going to get another perspective on the question of making sports safer. And, and enhancing our understanding of concussions and shots to the head and the cumulative impact that this can have. Hockey organizations at each level of the sport must make appropriate rulemaking decisions for themselves and their constituents. And as I've mentioned, we firmly believe our rules are appropriate at the NHL level. All right, that from Gary Bettman uh, yesterday in Ottawa on Parliament Hill before a Commons Committee talking about brain brain injuries, concussion issues, CTE, and the importance uh, of keeping these sports safe. The NHL, in a lot of ways, is a contact sport, much like football is. There are going to be collisions. There are going to be injuries. 
Gary Bettman believes that they are doing enough to keep the sport safe. But are there mixed messages that Gary Bettman is putting out there? They're talking about the importance uh, of hockey right down from, you know, the professional all the way down to, to minor leagues, kids playing sports, to keep those sports safe. But at the same time, seemingly rejecting a lot of the science, a lot of what we now know about concussions and head injuries. Joining us to talk more about how we address these challenges, very pleased to welcome to the program Chris Nowinski, Ph.D., co-founder and CEO of the Concussion Legacy Foundation, former athlete himself, university football player, WWE wrestler as well. Chris, thanks so much for joining us here. Welcome to the program. My pleasure. What do you make when we have the, these uh, commissioners uh, of these professional sports leagues, on the one hand, you know, talking a good game about making the sport safer, having rules in place, but then it seems rejecting the science and our understanding around these issues. Yeah, I mean, personally, I consider it to be unethical to misrepresent the science on such a grand stage, uh, especially when some people still consider you a trusted source of information. Um, I think if you step back, and I've been following this now for 15 years, um, since the concussion ended my career with WWE, they're they're making changes because we've put pressure on them to make changes and act ethically with their players, meaning recognize their concussions, give them proper evaluations, and hold them out. Um, We've also, though, along the way, discovered that CTE is an issue in hockey that has opened up financial liability, the former players are suing the NHL, and so basically Gary Bettman's being advised if he acknowledges the well-known risk between repetitive brain trauma and CTE, um, he will make the settlement a much bigger uh, financial penalty for NFL owners. And so he is just essentially going to misrepresent the research uh, and put profits ahead of people, and we need to call him out for that. What What is our state of, of understanding between the, that link, that link between concussions, repeated hits to the head, and CTE? Gary Bettman really playing up the uncertainty that exists, but but how much do we know? <laughs> well, the, yeah, the, the uncertainty that exists is the uncertainty that exists with every neurological disease. Mm-hmm. What we do know today, and, and the great arbitrator of this information is in the U.S., is our Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. They just issued their first ever fact sheet last year. They said that CTE, the only known risk factor, is repetitive head impacts. And we can tell you with our research at Boston University, the largest brain bank in the world for this, it's also uh, a dose response issue. The longer you play and the more hits in the head you take, the greater your risk of developing this disease appears to be. That is an obvious connection in all of public health research. Smoking and lung cancer, not everybody gets lung cancer, but those who do, you know, the risk is correlates with how many years they smoked and how many cigarettes they smoked. Yeah. Sunburns and skin cancer, same correlation. We're seeing a very obvious and well-known correlation in this population, and CT is just not seen in regular people who do not are not exposed to brain trauma. Right. Uh, but aside from from these kinds of comments from from Gary Bettman and others, Chris, are, are we making progress? Do, do you feel as though we we are making advancements, both in terms of understanding of all of this and and making sports safer? Well, here's the best framework to consider that question. Uh, CTE today is the only preventable 
neurodegenerative disease, right? We all know people have unfortunately been diagnosed with Alzheimer's disease or Parkinson's disease. We have no idea how to prevent those diseases right now in any significant way. CTE, you will not get if you are not hit in the head. And so if you think about that, what an opportunity we have to reform sports in which for the last few decades, it's been open season on your kid's brain when they were five years old because we made the mistake of playing kids' games by adult rules. So we can prevent most of these problems if we change today. And every time Gary Bettman is go out there trying to sow doubt and protect his, his financial assets, he is slowing down the progress we could make in protecting kids and protecting current athletes. It was 2006. You wrote the book Head Games, uh, Football's Concussion Crisis, which, which was certainly an important book and then led to a documentary. When you were assessing the landscape at the time and you compare that to today, 2019, are, are, are there areas where we haven't made a lot of progress, but are, are there areas where you look around and say, this is totally different than it was, you know, a dozen years ago? No, you're absolutely right that we've made incredible progress on the idea that concussions are serious, right? We now know that we aren't putting athletes back into the game. Almost all the professional sports are towing the line, have concussion protocols. Um, and so in, in people who pay attention are doing much better protecting their kids. In the United States, we have laws in all 50 states that say you cannot return to the same game when you have a concussion, and you need to be treated by a doctor. That's a huge, huge victory. Where we're not doing great is we're still not preventing the subconcussive trauma that's associated with CTE. So we still have tackling in youth football, which we're trying to get rid of in the States. We still have heading in youth soccer before the age of 14, which we're trying to get rid of. Um, and the other group that's not being uh, taken care of is the long-term post-concussion syndrome group. So, like, I, I still deal with symptoms from my last concussion in 2003. Um, we haven't made great clinical progress in getting those people better, and nor do we have any treatments for those who have CTE. And so those of us who have been unlucky um, are still looking for more progress on research so that we can relieve ourselves of these debilitating symptoms. It was interesting, and certainly there's been pressure on the NHL to take more of a zero-tolerance approach to, to headshots. Gary Bettman made the argument yesterday that we would you know, lose kind of the essence of the game is what he was arguing. And look, people love hockey. People love football. And, and it's a, a compelling argument that you know, we don't want to lose these sports. But you know, is, it, is it a binary choice, Chris? Does it mean either keeping them as they are or losing them altogether? Or can we make these sports safer and still <laughs> maintain their essence? That's a perfect question. So I come to this as a former, from the, the angle of someone who's a former WWE wrestler, and let people hit me in the head with chairs. Yeah. You know, I'm okay with adults doing dangerous jobs for entertainment, and entertainment is about making money. And so what Gary Bettman is actually saying is that we might lose fans if we change the rules, and we don't want to take that risk. But the, the, what we don't know is if they did eliminate headshots, would the fans still be there? And my gut says, yes, the NFL has gotten more popular since it's gotten safer in the last 10 years. And I think we, Olympic hockey, everyone loves. And so we need to convince the NHL to take that risk because I think they would actually be financially rewarded if it wasn't such a blood sport and you didn't have to go watch these guys get docked out when they don't have to be. 
and looking after uh, you know athletes who, who who are suffering from this, and you have these lingering effects. I mean, I, I you know the WWE's been criticized for you know abandoning wrestlers who've been injured. I think the NHL, the NFL, they've been criticized as well. That you know you're hanging these people out to dry. They sacrifice so much for your bottom line, and and now basically they're on their own. I mean, is that starting to change? It's absolutely changing, and 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 regarding the WWE, it's a, it's a it's an interesting situation. You know, with, while Gary Bettman's telling NHL players, "Don't worry about CT," there's there's nothing wrong there. Um, the WWE has been inviting me to come speak to the talent for the last five years wow. about what our research is showing, and I, they don't ask you what I'm going to say. I say, "Look, this is what we know, and this is what I think you could do." to protect your career, protect your health. And so there's a very open dialogue in the wrestling community that everybody is on the same page. We can do this and still be as entertaining, but do it more safely. And I, and I think WB should be acknowledged and rewarded for that. Um, but the other thing we have to realize is that we don't have great ways to fix those who uh, have been damaged from this. Well, I'm not sure what happened there. Uh, the line just caught out, which I, I suppose timing-wise uh, could be worse because we're right at uh, the end of the segment here. Chris Nowinski is the uh, co-founder and CEO of the Concussion Legacy Foundation. Uh, more at his website, chrisnowinski.com, and more at concussionfoundation.org. All right, when we come back, we're going to uh, shift gears. We're going to hear from uh, Andrew Rivkin, who is uh, with the uh, DART investigation team at Johns Hopkins University. We're going to talk about the idea of defending Earth from asteroids. It's something that NASA says the world needs to take a lot more seriously. So what are our options? I think this uh, headline in the National Post this week puts it well. It's a Colby Kosh uh, article about this next topic. NASA's plan to punch an innocent asteroid in the face. You know, I mean, yeah, these asteroids don't, don't mean us harm. They're just doing asteroid things. But certainly there have been times in Earth's history where large asteroids have collided with our planet. And it typically doesn't end well. It didn't end well for the dinosaurs. And potentially in the future, it could maybe not end well for humanity. But is it inevitable? Is there anything we can do about it? Now, certainly we've come a long way in, in detecting these potential Earth killers that are out there. Or, or even those that could cause a lot of damage. And I guess it's, it's good to know where they are, which way they're going. But if one was headed for Earth... What would our options be? This was uh, being discussed this week at the 2019 Planetary Defense Conference. And, and it's something that NASA says maybe not just the U.S., but I mean, <laughs> obviously, we're all affected by this. We all share this planet. And it's something that perhaps collectively we need to be a little more alarmed about or at least need to be a little more proactive about. So NASA is going to be uh, essentially practicing how to to respond and how to potentially punch an asteroid in the face, as it were, deflect an asteroid that might be headed toward our planet. Well, how might we do so? Well, this is where our next guest comes in. Uh, Andrew Rivkin is a planetary astronomer. He's co-lead of the DART investigation team at Johns Hopkins University. That stands for a double asteroid redirection test. Andy, great to have you with us here. Welcome to the program. Thanks, Rob. It's a pleasure to be here and, and uh, hi to everyone out there in uh, the great white north. Well, we appreciate that. Now, look, this is something you've obviously been uh, been a part of, been working on for some time. So what do you make of the fact now that maybe there's there's now finally some, some urgency to, to this? Well, it's, um, 
I don't know if I would say urgency exactly, but there's some momentum at least for uh, for tackling uh, tackling the issue. Uh, a lot of uh, astronomers have been pushing for a survey of, of the kind you said to kind of see what's out there, uh, make sure that we don't have any any problems coming up uh, imminently. Um, and along the, uh, at the same time as that, also trying to develop what we would do if, uh, if, if we did find something, um, it turns out that the, the object that DART is going to visit is making a close pass in 2022. So this is the time we want to go and, and, uh, do the practice because, uh, our target Didymos is a great object to do that with. Right. It, let's, so let's talk about that. It's, it's not, it's not in, you know, we're not in danger. This asteroid is not necessarily going to collide with Earth as best as we can tell, but it'd be close enough that we could, we could launch something at it and, and see what happens then. Absolutely. It's going to be, um, something like 10 million kilometers from Earth, uh, at the time of the close approach. It never gets closer than, uh, five million kilometers, uh, so that's over 14 times the distance to the moon at the very closest, and it's not going to be that close until the 2100s. Mm-hmm. Um, and we are also uh, not going to hit the, the moon. We're not going to hit Didymos itself. Didymos has a moon, um, and we're going to hit the moon and see how to change the orbit of the moon around the main body. Right. So we're not um, we're not moving the the asteroid in its orbit around the sun. Okay, how big is that asteroid, and how big is its moon? Uh, the the main asteroid is about something like eight hundred meters in size. Uh, the moon that we're going to hit is about one hundred and fifty meters in size. Um, we hope to get uh, much better or more precise numbers um, as we observe them more in the time leading up to the impact, uh, but we don't think those will change too much. You know, it'll be 782 instead of 800, but but uh, about those sizes. Right. At, at what point do we worry about humanity's survival in terms of size? Um, there are... Um, there are provisions in place uh, where the, the different nations uh, under the United Nations uh, have, have different thresholds at which they act. So if an object um, has a 1% chance of hitting, we think, uh, then a certain set of protocols go into place to study how we might deflect it or how we might act. Um, and then if it reaches a 10% probability, then an additional set of, of actions go into place. Uh, this is the sort of practice that's been going on. There's a, been kind of a, basically a role-playing exercise going on at the Planetary Defense Conference this week where they've, they've been practicing that sort of scenario. Um, but we get hit all the time by small things. Um, there was a, uh asteroid that was only about four meters in size that hit in British Columbia in the year 2000 in a place called Tagish Lake. Um, it didn't hurt anyone. It was pretty small, so it mostly burned up in the atmosphere. It gave us some great science when we picked up the pieces. Um, the other end of that, there was a, about a 10-kilometer body uh, that hit in uh, Ontario about almost 2 billion years ago. It left a crater that's 130 kilometers across. That one would have been really, really bad. That's about yeah. the size that that killed the dinosaurs. Um, so in, in a sense, it's a matter of when we get one of those again. Uh, we've checked the area, and we're, we're good. We, we don't expect those sorts of things very often, maybe every 100 million years or so. 
Um, but you know, it's like, it's like a roulette wheel, not like a clock. Um, you know, we, we think we're, our number's not going to come up for a while, but, uh, we, we still want to make sure that we're prepared in case, in case it does. Uh, so this meteor we're going to practice on as an example, um, 800 meters or so, what would be the impact of say an 800 meter asteroid hitting earth? Um, an 800 meter object hitting the earth, uh, would, um, well, it would it would cause an earthquake, uh, something like um, a, a, like a seven on, on the magnitude scale. Um, it would have an impact energy hundreds of times larger uh, than the largest nuclear weapon test that uh, ever happened. That was uh, from the from the Soviet Union back in the day. They had a fifty megaton hydrogen bomb. This would be a hundred or two hundred times larger than that. Uh, it would probably leave a crater something like 10 kilometers across there'd be a huge fireball it would, it would be it would be bad for the area where it hit yeah. it wouldn't necessarily quite have global effects um but it would be very bad for the area that it hit right and, and i guess and i wonder i mean in terms of of a global response and actually trying to to change the the trajectory of, of an asteroid what would be that threshold then if, if it's only going to have regional effects if it's survivable if it's if it's bad but not catastrophic i mean is that the kind of situation where we'll we'll let that one hit we'll we'll save our our punch for when the real big one's coming that's a great question uh at, at some level it's um kind of a policy question not a science mm-hmm. question um one of the there, there are four responses that we think are uh, ready if if we found something tomorrow, which you know we we, we don't think we're going to. I'll, I'll again you know continue to impress you know on people. We we have no there's nothing that's incoming that we know of. Right. Uh, but there are four responses. One of them is civil defense. One of them is something's going to come in. There's going to be a flash, um, but it's just going to make a loud noise. It's going to break some windows. Stay away from the window. Um, Something like that happened only a few years ago in Siberia, uh, in a town called Chelyabinsk, um, and a, a, an object about 20 meters in size came in. We didn't see it coming. Big flash. Everyone rushed to the window to see what happened. And then there was an, uh, a shockwave that broke the windows. About a thousand people were hurt. Um, so if we saw something, if we knew something like that was coming, uh, we would have the uh, have the warning to be able to say, okay, you know it. Like I said, at 2.30, there's going to be a flash. You've got two minutes to get away from the windows. Um, because it would not, the, 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 the uh, amount of effort it would take to try to deflect something like that would not be worth, worth the cost of you know, replacing every window in town. Right. Um, on the other hand, at the big sizes, uh, we think the, really the main response we have is the biggest tool in our, in our toolbox is some sort of nuclear nuclear device. Um, so DART is designed uh, to give us another tool, something if, if we don't want to use some sort of nuclear response. A lot of people are uncomfortable with it. Um, there are laws against testing those sorts of things in space. Um, and so uh, uh, the, the type of, of spacecraft we're using with, with DART called a kinetic impactor Basically, you ram it into the asteroid and um, and try to change the orbit that way. At about what speed then is is Dart going? Uh, Dart will hit at somewhere between six and seven kilometers a second. So um, 
that's that's much obviously much faster than we're we're used to uh, in our everyday. Mm-hmm. Um, and then asteroids tend to hit the Earth at something like between fifteen and twenty kilometers a second. So these are speeds that we are we're not uh, not used to. Right. So it it, it produces a, quite an impact then at, at that speed. So what, what's the expected aftermath of that? What do we expect to happen when START makes its its contact? Uh, so we are, um, one, uh, some of the, the nuances in, involved in this, cause we're, we're new at this and we're, we're trying to do an experiment, uh, you know, uh, and, uh, get useful data out of it. Um, one of the things we think is true is we don't want to give too big of a shove all at once, um, because we don't want to disrupt the target and then just have, a bunch of material, you know, moving uh, instead of one one piece you can keep track of more easily. Um, so we're going to change the speed of the moon uh, by about a millimeter a second. Um, and that's not very fast, but if you give it enough time, that builds up and, and you know, you can, you can move it quite a ways compared to where it would have been. So we're going to um, impact in the fall of 2022, and then we're going to see how we change the orbit of the moon. Um, the, the asteroid is, uh, like I said, about 10, kilo, 10 million kilometers away. Um, so it's only going to appear like a point of light. But by watching the point of light get brighter and fainter, uh, we can tell what we did to the moon's orbit. So that's, that's the plan right now. Up until the impact, we study the brightness changes to see, make sure we know what it's doing before we mess with it. And then after we impact, keep observing to see how we've changed it. And are we going to have images of, of this crash? Um, we hope to. Um, we're going to have a camera on the spacecraft itself that's going to take it on in. Um, and then uh, the current plan has a um, very small spacecraft, maybe only about the size of a cereal box, uh, that will be built by the Italian Space Agency. Uh, that should have a camera on it. We're going to detach it a little bit before we impact. And the plan is to have that uh, take images of the impact. From the ground, um, we are trying to be very careful about what we we think may or may not happen. We haven't done the simulations yet, but it's possible that we'll end up um, creating enough debris uh, that it could be seen as a tail from the ground. We're we're not sure about that, so we don't want to, certainly don't want to promise anything, Uh, but it's possible that it's the sort of thing people could go to their their uh, you know neighborhood planetariums and science science nights and and uh, maybe be able to see. Well, yeah, I mean, it's going to be fascinating to watch. Obviously, this is a very uh, important and serious issue we're addressing here too. Uh, Andy, thanks so much for explaining this to us, and really appreciate you making some time for us here today. Thanks so much for this. My pleasure. Thank you. All right, take care. That is uh, Andrew Rivkin. He is planetary astronomer and co-lead of the DART investigation team, the double asteroid redirection test, part of the Johns Hopkins Applied Physics Laboratory. Thanks for downloading and listening to the podcast. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review for free on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you find your podcast. You can also find me on Twitter at Rob Breckenridge, and you can email me, rob at 770chqr.com. Talk to you next time. Afternoons with Rob Breckenridge, starting at 1230 on News Talk 770 Calgary.